Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we'll be out of lockdown in England by the time you listen to this, although depending on where you live, you are probably still subject to some quite strict restrictions as a result of the tier system. But I hope that the easing does allow you to do a bit more with your horses over the coming weeks. Our guest this week is Michael Whitaker, the second of the legendary show jumping family to feature on the podcast after our interview with William earlier this year. Michael will be sharing his memories of the great Monsanto. He was just so consistent, and when, when you needed him, he always came up with the goods, you know. That was uh, all the championships and, you know, the derbies, the big Grand Prix. When the chips were down, that's when he really came up, you know. I'll also be joined by Eleanor Jones and Becky Murray from our news team to talk about whiskers, ground lines and half pads. Finally, vet Helen Van Toole of VT Vets will talk us through some of the issues to consider if your horse has a long day out hunting. I think it's very important to consider we come home late at night in the dark with a tired horse maybe. We might leave as early as nine o'clock in the morning for a day's hunting and not come back home till seven. So do up your horse's brushing boots and let's get going. Hello, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted to say we have been joined on the podcast this week by show jumping royalty. It's the much decorated Olympian and four-time European gold medalist, Michael Whitaker. Michael, it's great to have you here. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. Now, there are so many things we could talk to you about from your long and distinguished career in the saddle, but we're going to concentrate on one very special horse who stars in our Legends of the Sport series in this week's Horse and Hound. It's the absolute superstar, Mon Santa. Um, why does Mon Santa stand out for you so much? You've had some amazing partnerships over the years. What, what sort of made him stand out? Yeah, I think uh, he was just so consistent. And when, when you needed him, he always came up with the goods, you know. That was, a, you know, all the championships and you know it did derbies the big grand prix whenever he really when the chips were down that's when he really that's when he really came came up you know fantastic and i mean he does stand out there was he your sort of horse of a lifetime or i mean what how does he rate with some of the others no definitely one of them you know i mean i've had i have had some very good horses uh but the thing with him was his he was so consistent and he did it over you know quite a few few years as well you know that's it. That longevity is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, and take us back to the beginning. Then you first spotted him out in Ireland. Was he a five-year-old? I think when you first you said you first spotted him. Yeah, yeah I saw him as a five-year-old with uh, Leonard Cave. You know, and he always looked very careful. I mean, you wouldn't have said he was ever going to do what he what he did. <laughs> you know, like running around, you know, and he was just kind of jumping what he had to jump. But you never thought, well, that's definitely going to be, a, you know. He's going to jump the World Championships or anything like that. <laughs> and then I saw him as a six-year-old, he was exactly the same, you know, and I thought, oh, he's still got him, he, you know, he's still got him, he's still, he's still jumping, so. But then uh, Johnny Greenwood bought him, I think, when he, when he was eight. And uh, straight away with Johnny, Johnny, you could tell straight away that he was going to be a very, very good horse, you know. Oh, wow. And did you follow his progress? Were you, did you sort of always keep your eye on him or did you uh, ever yeah, expect I, to ride him? Oh, no, I never expected to ride him, no, never. But I always kind of kept my eye on him a little bit because he was, you know, he was such a good horse, you know, like uh, Gillian Greenwood rode him and I, th I think J uh, Julia rode him as well. Yeah. And uh, he was always, you know, he always looked like he was a really good horse. You know, and they, they, like, they both did very well with him, actually. That's it. Um, there was a fun catch ride that you got out in Spain, was it, when I think it was Gillian, was she injured? 
Yes, yeah, she, yeah, she was. I wasn't expected to be riding at all. You know, so I hadn't even got any riding gear with me. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, Julian was hurt, so Johnny asked me to ride, and I think he was. I think I maybe even won the first Grand Prix, or first or second anyway. And then the next one, uh, next one, he stopped the second face, and I fell off. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Put you back in your place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> And I hadn't, I'd forgotten actually that he wasn't, he was 13 by the time you actually got the ride on him when Lord Harris bought yeah. him. Um, but you clicked straight away. Can you remember the, much about those first few months with him? Uh, yeah, the first couple of shows, we sort of dived straight into the deep end. You know, I did a couple of shows, like local shows, and then we went straight to like the kind of world, on the World Cup circuit, you know, and it did kind of take me a couple of shows to to sort of click, but then he did click, you know, and he was second or won in Antwerp. I think we might have won in Antwerp. Mm -hmm. And then he went to Gothenburg and he was second in the Grand Prix and the World Cup, so. Oh my goodness. They clicked, you know, it took a couple of shows, but then it did click. Yeah. And what were his best attributes? Can you sort of pinpoint what made him so good? Uh, I think just his, uh, his, his, his attitude, you know, you could take it to a local show and he wouldn't do anything at all special. You know, he might even have two down around the 120, you know, he wouldn't yeah. do anything. <laughs> and even the first day, uh, you know, the bigger show, if, if, like, he kind of knew when you were trying, you know, if you weren't really trying, he, was, he wasn't either, you know. But, you know, when, they, when he could feel it, probably the tension even in the warm-up, you know, he, he kind of... You know, he just jumped a foot high straight away. And Gillian said he could sort of go for weeks without hitting a fence. Is that right? His consistency was yeah, just... Yeah, uh... yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he was so careful, you know, he was, um, like, unbelievable careful. And you always rode him in a hackamore, is that right? Was he difficult in the mouth or was that just something he went best in? Yeah, I... I he sort of came here in hackamore and I never changed it, you know. Yeah. Johnny, <laughs> Johnny rode him in hackamore, Johnny had him in hackamore, and I, I, I never ever changed it. And you enjoyed so many big wins with him over the years. Are you able to pick out a few of your proudest moments with him? Obviously, the European Championships, when we won the team and John was first, I was second individually. Oh, yes, in 1989, I think that was. Yeah. Then Dublin, Dublin was a nice one to win. To win. Uh, and then, like, Calgary, obviously, was a good mm -hmm. one. And then the three, three Hickstead derbies, you know. Oh, yeah. Tell us about the Hickstead derbies. I mean, to win three in a row is something pretty special. What, what yeah. are your best memories of going round there on him? I think uh, we we won one in a jump off, beat Herbie Gunning on in a jump off. But I think the last one he won, I think it had absolutely poured it down. I mean, the torrential rain, torrential oh, rain, you know, and it was nearly, nearly not fit to jump. And uh, I think eight faults were the best round, and I went in and I can't even remember which fence he had down, but we jumped round for four. But I mean, that was a, you know, like unbelievable. Yeah, and similarly, sort of Spruce Meadows. I mean, the tracks round there are massive, and you, I mean, he had a great record going round those tracks, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he won he even won Friday. He won the big class on Friday night. Jumped two rounds of the Nations Cup. I don't think he jumped clear actually the Nations Cup, and then come out and won the Grand Prix. Just so, amazing. There's, you know, I watched some. On the track, yeah. I watched some footage of the, the jump off for that Grand Prix and the commentator just said, it's exquisite, you know, it was just such an amazing round. Yeah, How did yeah. it feel to jump jump round there on him? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's difficult to say because you're kind of under pressure, you know, you're not really enjoying it because you're, you know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're just hoping you're going to, uh, but, you know, like kind of when you look back, it, yeah, it was, it was, you know, when, like when he was kind of, on the song, which it was that day, you know, it's, it was like, it just used to curl, curl, curl around the jump, you know. 
Oh, amazing. What a feeling. Yeah, great technique. Yeah. Yeah. And just going back actually to those European Championships, I mean, it was such a special event where you and John were sort of yeah, head yeah. to head for those medals. But yeah, so you were leading going into the final round, weren't you? And then tell us yeah. about that final day. Yeah, no, like the horse was jumping, you know, what the course and had like a, a very easy ox before the combination. The and the combination was a bit tricky, you know, two verticals coming out, big ox to two verticals. So I just Ooh, thought yes. to myself, don't, don't override that ox. That's what it's there for, you know, so you kick at the ox and then, you know, it makes the combination more difficult. So I thought, don't override that ox. And he just touched the back rail of the ox. Oh, no. So I, did, I, I obviously didn't override it. I underrode it. Oh, my goodness. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Yeah. He kind of lost my concentration to a combination and he, he jumped it anyway. I couldn't run it anywhere, so he jumped it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but to be up there on the podium next to your brother, I mean, that's always going to be yeah. a special moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just, I'd have been a bit happy if it had been another way around. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, so many great moments. Were there any sort of near misses or big classes that you feel he should have won along the way? Not really, to be honest. I mean... Oh, yeah, obviously I had the last phase down, like in uh, Geestron, I had a Grand Prix absolutely paralysed by about five seconds and I galloped at the last jump. Again, a very, very easy phase, thinking, well, I'll take a pull in a minute, I'll take a pull in a minute, I'll take a pull in a minute, and then, oh, then no. I finished up seeing an even longer one and just <laughs> trying to hurdle over it. And he, oh, you know, no. There's no way he could, yeah, there's no way he could have jumped it, you know. And yeah. That down. But, I mean, he, he was on the hill, like, he, you know, he was very, very consistent, awesome. You know, whatever he, he, he could, you know, he could jump, he did, actually. Brilliant. And, he, I mean, he kept going to the age of 19 as well, didn't he? It was just, yeah, he did, uh, yeah, yeah. And never had a day's lameness in his life? He just, no, not, uh, not a day, not, not, not a day. Not a day, he was soundest horse, you know, he retired completely sound, you know, he was, like, very, very sound, hard horse, you know. Yeah. Um, you must have been sad to say goodbye, but uh, to appreciate... Yeah, but, you know, I think, yeah, them, you know, when they get to that age, it's, you know, I mean... I'd sooner get them out in one piece, really, than just keep going and going and going until something happens. You know, I think you're better getting them out in one piece, and you know they've been, they've had a fantastic career. And, exactly. You know, so I obviously sad only that I won't going to ride them again. Yeah. Oh, what an absolute superstar he was! I bet you bet you wish you had a few of like him in your string right now. You'd, uh, you'd be yeah, quite yeah, useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before you go, let's just hear about what you've been up to recently. You've been out in uh, Villamora for three weeks, where your son Jack was as well. Tell us about that trip. It must have been great after a quiet year that we've had this year to get some jumping action. Yeah, actually, Jack, Jack was there for seven weeks. Jack oh, did seven weeks. Yeah, I did the first four weeks, and then had two kind of young ones that were gone very well, but they probably done enough. And then my two, my two older ones were both a bit off, so... I came home actually. I brought I brought my horses home. Uh, Jack stayed out there, but Jack Jack were flying actually. The last show, he was double clear in the Nations Cup and fifth. He was fifth in the Grand Prix, I think, but double clear. Then he was placed in most of the ranking classes. He went in over the whole seven weeks. And Barmay was third in another Grand Prix. Uh, so Jack had a Jack had a right good a right good trip. Nice one, yes. Yeah, definitely was. following in the footsteps. Looking very impressive. And I know everything's everything's up in the air as well, but do you, do you, have you got any sort of plans for next year? Do you know where you're going to be heading at the start of next year? Uh, well, I think it'll be one of them tours again, you know, because I don't think any of the World Cups will be on it's a bit soon. Uh, I don't think there'll be much indoors anyway, actually, yeah. the bigger shows. 
so I think it'll be one of them tours again, you know, and Jack's quite keen to do the Sunshine Tour, so I think we'll probably go down there. It's great for the horses, isn't it? Have all that jumping in one spot. So, and I also have to ask you about Christmas. I know it's not going to be the same without Olympia yeah. this year. Year is Olympia is always a show you enjoy, I guess. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, it's uh, well, the old kind of winters, you know, not being quite the same. You know, uh, it's a bit surreal, really. But uh, I, you know, I do enjoy being at home anyway. So it's not that. You know, that's not a problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but no Christmas. I think we're just, just always staying at home again. You know. Yeah, what does the Whitaker family usually do? Are you uh, turkey and all the trimmings? And yeah, yeah, we are, yeah, just the yeah, usual stuff, you know, big Christmas dinner. <laughs> Excellent. So. And do you get a day off or are you mucking out first thing in the morning and business as uh, usual? I, I've, I've been, I've, I've dodged it up to this year because it's always <laughs> just come right after Olympia, so that's always oh, yeah. excuse, but <laughs> this year no. I'm not sure I better dodge that one. Yeah, I'll try and come up with an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much yeah, again for coming on you. the podcast. And yeah, we'll hopefully look forward to seeing you out in bed very soon, I hope. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. I'm joined today by two of our news team. Firstly, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Morning. And our news writer, Becky Murray. Hello, Becky. Hi, Pippa. Now, Becky, you were off last week, and I think you have some exciting news about Chloe, your mare, who went away for some schooling, don't you? Yes, I am absolutely on cloud nine at the moment and boring everyone on Facebook with my many, many posts. Um, Chloe has officially graduated and is now back home. So I had a great week last week riding her and had a little jump at an arena, which was just so much fun. And then the past two days I've been um, hacking before work, which just feels the best way to start a day. That's lovely. It's so nice to hear of someone just really enjoying their horse and uh, and the progress they're able to make with them. It's, uh, you know, sometimes we get so wrapped up in competing and rosettes and it's lovely just to see your joy and just enjoying your horse. Yes, absolutely. It's so good to hear. And what about you, Eleanor? What's happening with you? Um, yeah, so I, I had a jump with my trainer and because uh, <laughs> I, I hadn't had a jump for a bit. So I asked him to put what looked like quite a big oxer down and he did, which surprised me. Uh, and then I didn't actually end up jumping that fence. And he said at the end, oh, well, it was too small. And all the other fences were the same height as that was before anyway. <laughs> 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 but no, that was fair. Oh, sometimes I think it's all in our mind how big these fences are. Oh, definitely. Well, I'm hoping to get some riding in this weekend with the lockdown in England coming to an end and restrictions easing very slightly, although obviously a different amount in different areas. And Becky, on terms of, uh, of, of, of stories and news, not just what we've been doing with our ponies, I'm coming to you first today. We're going to talk about some of the rule changes which were voted through at the FEI General Assembly at the end of November. And the first one is something which always elicits strong opinions and it applies across all the FEI disciplines. What's this all about? So from 1st of July next year, whiskers cannot be removed and that's around the horse's eyes and the muzzle. This has been written into the vet rules and will result in disqualification. And um, The rule states that horses are not permitted to compete in FEI events if the sensory hairs have been clipped, shaven or in any other way removed, unless they've been removed by a vet to prevent pain or any discomfort to the horse. 
Mm, that's interesting. And this brings the worldwide rules in line with those already in place in a few countries, although not in Britain. And so it's hairy noses all the way from July next year onwards. I was also caught by the fact the FEI wants to define amateur with the idea of bringing in a new concept for competitions, they say. I think this might be quite a sticky one, Becky. What do you think? That's right. I mean, I think this is going to be quite an interesting one to follow over time as there's always that point of how exactly do you define an amateur? And I think it's a point people are always going to have quite individual opinions on. Definitely. I remember I wrote a feature about this sort of, it must have been 15 years ago now, talking about how there are different, you know, how, how it differs across different sports in terms of the split between amateurs and professionals or, you know, restricting riders who've ridden at a certain level. And then you can sort of get into discussing whether it's to do with whether you earn your money from horses. But and that might sound quite simple, but then you start looking at things like people who maybe work in the equestrian industry, but they don't ride for a living. You know, if you work in equestrian PR or you run a tax shop or like us, you write about horses. I would say those people are still amateurs because they're not earning money from riding horses. Um, but but there are people who would say that those people are professionals because they work in the in the horse industry. And I don't think there's ever a simple answer, is there? No, and I think when they come to, it will be really interesting when sort of they get that definition and where the sort of input comes from. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to seeing how the FBI tries to tackle this one. It's not something I would want to be uh, to be leading the process on. <laughs> and finally, there were quite a few new rules that were announced aimed at eventing safety. Can you give us a rundown on a few of those, Becky? Well. From July next year, less experienced riders are facing tougher minimum eligibility requirements before stepping up a level. This decision has been based on recommendations made by the FBI, Risk Management Steering Group and Equity Ratings Data Analysis. Now, as MERs apply to combinations, this would mean adding extra miles in preparation for more long format events where an experienced horse goes to a new rider. But the Eventing Riders Association has asked for MERs to be adjusted to allow combinations to have the option of more short format competitions instead of increasing the number of long format requirements at the level below. The ERA is concerned about those added miles and preparing and the impact that will have on sort of well-being and soundness. And another change is that frangible devices will be mandatory at certain types of cross-country fences across all levels for the first time next year. This going a step further from this year where it was brought in at four and five star level. Mm. And another one that I noticed was that they are saying that ground lines are going to be compulsory on all cross-country fences. And uh, I think that's quite interesting because although that might sound like a sort of straightforward safety innovation, I think it can be a little bit controversial. Certainly Mark Phillips has, has written in the past for us about the fact that if you have a bigger ground line, riders actually respect fences less and therefore the fences can become dangerous. And in fact, as a course designer, by placing a fence in the right place and putting the right decoration around it, you can help the horse understand the question and do the same job as a ground line w without necessarily having a ground line. So uh, that, that might sound like a straightforward one, but I think it's one that, that could also elicit a bit of discussion. Thank you very much, Becky, for bringing us up to date with, with all those, uh, those changes from the General Assembly. Eleanor, coming over to you, there's been some good news this week in the area of musculoskeletal therapy, hasn't there? Yeah, so this is the, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons has released some new guidance that is, essentially says owners don't now have to get veterinary approval if they want a musculoskeletal practitioner to come and see their horse. 
So that's interesting. So this is particularly, I think, around sort of maintenance treatments rather than where the horse actually has a problem. Is that right? Yeah, so um, if there is, the, the guidance does state that all animals have to be registered with a vet and that if the practitioner sees anything that would make them think uh, there was a, an underlying health issue, a, a disease or an injury, that they should go straight back to the vet. Um, but yeah, this is for maintenance care, competition care. Um, and yeah, it's great news because obviously before, the, if the vet said, well, no, I can't do a referral for a horse I haven't seen recently I'll have to come and see it first that can mean the owner has to end up paying twice which obviously isn't great Mm. And Eleanor, I can just hear your dog Charlie joining in the Sorry. podcast in the background there. If anybody's wondering, uh, wondering who it is, but you know we're genuinely horse and hound, and Charlie likes to get involved sometimes. <laughs> um, but back with musculoskeletal therapy, it's been quite a long-running campaign to get to this point, hasn't it? Yeah, so Vav Simon, who's the president of the Register of Animal Musculoskeletal Practitioners, has been working towards this for years. Um, and she says some of their registrants have been losing work because of this need for the vet referrals. So they're delighted and they're saying hopefully it will mean more horses will get the treatment or uh, the treatment won't be delayed. Hmm. Well, it sounds like a real positive horses and for owners in terms of ensuring, as you say, that horses can get the, the maintenance treatments they need, but without heaping unnecessary cost on owners. And Eleanor, another story that you've been working on this week is about research into the effects of half pads under saddles. What was this looking at? So this was Russell McKechnie Guire of Centaur Biomechanics, along with Mark Fisher, uh, who's a saddle fitter, and Thilo Pfau who's from the Royal Veterinary College's Structure and Motion Laboratory. And they um, looked at different, because they said, you know, there hasn't been this research into the effect of, of half pads, which a lot of us like to use. And so they wanted to see what effect they had on saddles that had already been fitted to the industry guidelines. And what, what did the study find out? What were the results? So they they thought their hypothesis at the start was that it might create pressure because which would make sense if the saddle's been fitted without a half pad and then you put one on it could change things, um, and they looked at gel pads, wool ones, and ones made of what's called closed cell foam, and they found that the gel pad with the gel pad because and they used sort of pressure mapping and, and gait analysis technology. They found that in the gel pad, there was significantly higher pressure in the front of the saddle. Um, and it was where the pressure was higher was at the base of the withers, which is a very crucial point for back function and movement. But then they found in the wool and the foam pads, the, um, the pressure in the back, the rear area of the saddle was actually decreased. Uh, and that hadn't been what they expected at all. Interesting. And is there sort of a takeaway message from this for, for riders that we can sort of take a practical application from? Yeah, so obviously the, the takeaway is that using these wool or foam half pads could be beneficial um, and could be advantageous to some horses. But the take home message is that do check with the saddle fitter before you use one don't just go putting one on because if you had a saddle that was say a bit narrower in front it could possibly increase the pressure in that area so they're not saying everyone has to go and buy a pad now but it is something possibly to talk about with your saddle fitter mm, so when you're working with your saddle fitter you need to be talking about what's going under your saddle as yeah. well as, as as well as the saddle great thank you Eleanor lots of interesting stories coming through this week and thank you to Becky for joining us too So now we're going over to vet Helen Van Tool. 
Helen's practice, VT Vets, is based at Kirtlington outside Bicester and she hunts in that area and in Dorset. Um, so for today's topic, we're going to discuss the number of hours that we may spend on the horses in the saddle on a typical day's hunting. Depending whether your pack meets at 10.45 or 11, very often we've hacked in from maybe a couple of miles away. So may have been in the saddle by 10 a.m. And, you know, and early on in the season, we might be getting off at... 4.30 at dark or later towards the spring hunting, it may be even later than this. So it's one of the things we consider as being quite unique to hunting as the amount of hours in the saddle. Very basically, I think it's very important to consider saddle type and saddle fit. A lot of the very famous makes of saddles have never been designed to be sat on for that period of time. And whilst they might be highly popular within the eventing and show jumping fraternity, they may not be suitable uh, for uh, many hours with a rider on the saddle on that particular horse. So saddle type is important, how they're constructed, as well as obviously saddle fit. We all know how much our hunters change shape throughout the season, from being a little bit plump when they come in at the beginning of the year to being very lean January onwards towards the end of the season as they're clocking up many days. So not only is the type important, but also the fit, but continually checking the fit as they change shape. I think the saddle pads and numbers that we use under the saddles are again fairly unique to hunting. They need to be able to handle that period of time with a saddle on top. Man-made materials will cause friction burns on some horses back. Um, I myself am a big fan of some sheepskin. There's a couple of very good makes of numbers that I probably shouldn't mention their make uh, that I'm very fond of and I think they really do a good job in looking after the horse's back and absorbing the sweat away from the skin and not creating any uneven lines under the saddle. Another point of consideration is the girth. Again many horses can get sore in the girth area from having a saddle on for long periods of time and the girth being done up tight. Traditionally I think we've always used leather. This can be hard. They do mark the horses occasionally um, and there are now man-made materials like the neoprene girth that maybe are a bit gentler to certain horses, particularly if that horse has already had a girth rub early in the season and maybe have a, a bull patch on it. By changing not just the length of the girth but the material of the girth, there are usually ways around it. I am still a fan of the big leather girth, but I know that I have this debate with my sister often, who is a very big fan of the neoprene. The other aspect of hunting for many hours in the saddle is obviously that we come home late at night in the dark with a tired horse maybe and cold weather plus or minus a bit of rain. There's always a very strong debate about when washing off horses at night whether to be washed off with hot or cold water. I again am a fan of the hot water not least because it's kinder for the person washing off the horse and I do think that the horse prefers the hot water. Some people do say that you're more inclined to skin rashes if you wash off with hot water but I think nowadays with modern things like hibis scrub that we can add diluted into the solution of the hot water I don't think that's a problem um, and it's definitely more comfortable for the horse and they tend to stand still better while you wash them off. The other aspect is obviously the feeding of these horses they've been out the stable for many hours you know, we might leave as early as nine o'clock in the morning for a day's hunting and not come back home till seven. They haven't been grazing throughout the day. They are hungry. And what is best to feed them? Now, I suppose I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I love a bit of linseed after a day's hunting. I think the horses enjoy it. And I do think it is good for the coats. Things like oil, a uh, big fan of those being added as well. It's extra calories. 
without them having to actually eat huge volume. So it's about the enough volume to make them feel full, but not so much that they can't manage to finish their feed. And there's nothing wrong with feeding them as soon as they're washed off and had a drink, and then maybe giving them a late night feed when rugs are changed later. The other option to consider is as if you've gone to a meet further away from home than normal, a hay net or a haylage net on the way home may be very gratefully received by your horse and also the offer of a water before you drive home. Rug-wise, after we've washed them off, I think nowadays the most popular would probably be a form of Thermotex. I think they breathe well, but it is important to then go back out and change these rugs later, unless you happen to have the ever-desirable drying room, in which case you can wash the horses off and put them in the drying room, have them blown dry, dry and then they can get rugged up immediately into their night rugs. It saves a lot of effort and a lot of work later on. Bedding, I think, I think a straw bed's still pretty preferable. If it's very cold and the horses are cold, I think stable bandages on all four legs, not so much to support the leg, but just as a warming thing to wick the moisture out of their, out of their legs and to keep them warm and snug for the night. So those are my thoughts on looking after your hunter for the best for a long day in the saddle. Thank you, Helen. Next week, we have a special guest who is one of the winners of this year's Horse and Hound Awards in partnership with NAF. But I can't reveal who the guest is because the winners are only being announced next week. But this was one of my absolute favourite podcast interviews, so you should definitely tune in for it. We'll also be back with vet Ricky Farr to talk about managing your horse's weight through the winter and the serious consequences of not doing so. Plus, of course, we'll have all the latest news. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. And I'll be back next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.